0: Hi guys, welcome back to the eighth episode of This Is Not News. I'm your host Jai, and today on the episode we have Waitama Worth. Now Waitama is a virologist uh, up in Townsville. Uh, he's actually doing his PhD at the moment, specifically working with turtles. We do talk about that a little bit in this episode. But we sat down today. We actually also went live on Facebook. Just to get some, uh, some more information about coronavirus, uh, there were some questions that I wanted to know, and I also opened it up to a lot of people in the This Is Not News group um, and the wider community to send me questions, um, You know, things that we want to know about coronavirus uh, and how it works and interacts. So this was a really great chat with Waitama, um, and I think we should just get straight into this one. So I hope you guys enjoy it. All right. You all uh, right? Ready to go?
1: Yeah. Yeah, good. Got my glasses on. Got my borrow shirt. Oh, uh, sweet. Really smart. <laughs> <laughs> Dope.
0: So, uh, how you been, man? What, what's been going on?
1: Um, Yeah, like I said, I've just been uh, about to finish my thesis, my PhD. So, I've been doing um, uh, basically a lot of uni. <laughs> which yeah. Is, yeah, like, I guess since we met back in uni hall 10 years ago, something like that. So, ago, yeah, basically yeah. just haven't left since then and just stuck it out <laughs> at uni. Yeah, true. So, right what you... Yeah. You've
0: still been... So when you were back at uni, when we knew each other, when you're doing, I suppose, your bachelor or your undergrad, what yep. were you studying then before you... Uh, biochemistry. Yep. And yep. so
1: then have you gone back and done other stuff then afterwards? Yeah. So I did a, um, an honours degree in uh, microbiology and immunology after that. Yep. And then I've started my um, PhD now in uh, uh, epidemiology and pathology um, in wildlife okay. disease, actually.
0: Oh, cool. So is that... Um, I suppose that's semi-related to coronavirus, then, isn't
1: it? Because it's yeah, it's all sort of part of it, I guess. Like um, the modern sort of approach of um, virology is this like one health idea, and so that all the uh, that wild animals, the environment, and human health is all sort of linked together. Yep. So each aspect of that is really important in sort of this like a disease outbreak, and like sort of obvious with coronavirus, if the bats weren't there, like there are obvious wildlife um, component to this. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Cool. So um. Let's start off by just, uh, just tell everyone who you are, uh, what you do. I suppose we sort of went over it a bit, but tell everyone what you do and, um, and where you are at the moment. Right, yeah.
1: So I'm West Hamilworth. I'm a PhD student um, in Townsville at JCU in northern Queensland. Um, and I sort of, I work on wildlife disease, uh, mainly focused on the pathology and epidemiology of coronaviral infection. I work closely with uh, turtles, actually, and we do a bunch of other work on um, uh, different animals and um, some bird flu work, uh, as well as uh, different sort of wildlife disease aspects, uh, disease investigations in in our wildlife. Yeah,
0: cool. So, um, what's been going on up there then? Like, obviously, you're still in the academic world. Have uh, have people sort of w- what's happening in the academic world in terms of um, virology
1: and that at the moment? I'm Imagine. Yeah. So we were um hectic. We were pretty uh. Uh, I guess lucky that um, we have a bunch of academics who are very interested in this thing early on. So they uh, sort of made the transition to online learning fairly rapidly within our college. We're in a public health college. And so um, they were sort of switched on to this thing being a problem and made sure they went through a training of like uh, taking all the classes to online learning. Um, So that was pushed through fairly quickly. uh, And all the classes transferred to um, online learning. And they've basically... The campus isn't shut down. You can still go in there, um, but they're sort of saying, if you do not, don't need to come in, uh, don't yeah. bother. Yeah. So everything is transferred to online, um, which has been good. It's, it's actually been had a, like a reasonable social component to it because um, that it just basically has created these Zoom meetings to keep everyone up to date. And so yep. people who wouldn't normally a PhD or a high degree by research sort of program is fairly isolating. You're working by yourself a lot. But now everyone is sort of joining in bi weekly or weekly to these meetings with everyone. So it's actually been fairly social, which is good.
0: Really- That's interesting that like it's, it's sort of gone the opposite way for uh for you guys. <laughs> it's gone from being, you know, from actually being more social just because yeah, of exactly. you know everything going yeah, well,
1: on. We actually started a, um, a research student uh Facebook chat, which we didn't have before. <laughs> everyone yeah. no just talked to each other. Yeah, and now yeah, an chat where people are communicating. Yeah, so do so you guys
0: Some share like articles and stuff to do? Cause like is are people in this, uh, you know, in the academic world, even if it's not their specialty, are you guys all sort of still talking about it amongst yourselves and interested oh, yeah. in it?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's definitely the talk of the day. And everyone um, is sort of getting onto it w- whatever way they can, I guess. So, like, um, my housemate is an ecologist and he studies um, bat movement populations, sort of tracking bats' like camps and around. And so, yep. sort of, he just decided, like, well, I mean, this is a huge component for bats and he can sort of apply his um, – uh, ecological understanding to this um, and so everyone is sort of moving in from all different fields to sort of help um, yeah in this outbreak
0: yeah cool that's interesting I might have to chat to him at one stage <laughs> that sounds good um, so so apart from like that what's Townsville like at the moment because um, you know I haven't been up there in, in a couple of years now mm-hmm. but what what's going on uh, in terms of I, I mean you're probably not going out much but have you heard much about what uh, like how it
1: is in Townsville at the moment yeah well it's still reasonably hot up here it's slowly starting to cool down a little bit but as you know it's in the tropics so uh, yeah it's been fairly hot they've um basically they started to close down uh but they initially started to close along with every uh the rest of the state i guess as like pubs and um large gatherings and stuff closed um they've recently started closing things like the goat track so there's a big hill in the middle of town and so uh up castle hill has been closed down basically people were too close to each other on the track but um we haven't had a case in two weeks up here, so uh, it's. I know some of the local politicians are sort of calling for a isolation of North Queensland to put a a, a border in at Bundaberg somewhere or something like uh, that. Yeah, the old North
0: Queensland uh, argument. They always want to make another exactly, state up there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's crazy. Um, yeah, so so there hasn't been many cases up there. Then, hey, have there? No,
1: there's a total of twenty four cases. I think.
0: Mean. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's good then. Good, it hasn't affected you guys too much. So um you know I've had I've been sending you you've almost been sort of my um my coronavirus fact checker for the last uh, couple of weeks or so just cuz it's like oh man what about this I just heard this or so send an article to you and um you've usually already read it and you can tell me um sort of what's going on. So maybe we sort of start with things that we definitely do know um mm-hmm. about it so far. So I remember I was talking to you, um about like how long it lasts on surfaces. Yeah. Um and I remember you, you sent us that um that research article now. Um so what's the what are the different surfaces and you know how long it sort of stays there from what we know and like what's the difference between those surfaces and why, you know, can can you give us a little bit of maybe why um those surfaces, you know, it acts differently?
1: Right. Yeah. So um yeah, there are like uh there's a range of different surfaces that were sort of tested in that study and they uh, tried like metal and plastic wood and cardboard. And I guess uh, there's different sort of inactivation properties of these surfaces. Um, Things like copper have like a sort of known um, inactivation property. And uh, the research has basically come from uh, antimicrobial studies in uh, bacteria. But basically I think the uh, main sort of takeaway with uh, these coronaviruses, because they are envelope viruses, is how well the moisture can sort of hold on these surfaces. So something that can dry out a lot quicker or hold moisture like cardboard, can kind of be a bit soggy, so it might not last a bit longer on there. Things like plastic have little grooves where can can um, sort of hide into that um, area. But yeah, there have been, the results have sort of um, said that it could last up to weeks on some of these services. But um, a lot of these studies um, haven't really been used using um, infectious virus as a, um, as a measure of whether this virus is still viable. So uh, even though you might detect the virus on there, it's not actually a measure of whether um, the virus is active uh, is there in a state where it could infect you afterwards yeah so I've heard the analogy of like um, if you detect um a dog pee on a hot fire hydrant, it doesn't mean there's a dog there you know like there's part of the dog or something like that you can still and yeah. not the dog can go and smell that fire hydrant and detect that there was a dog there yeah, but it doesn't necessarily mean the dog is still there. so the same with these sort of tests it's um it's hard to say generally these viruses um, uh not very stable at all envelope viruses uh, will not last that long in these services yeah
0: yeah because i think there was an article i sent you and it said something like um they found remnants on uh, a cruise ship like 17 days after people had been off the ship um and that's what you sort of said to me well it's like you can find some of the rna or whatever it is the mm. you know genetic material of it but is it infectious um You know, and so I suppose it's easy to blow that up in the media then, and go, "Oh, we found it!" You know.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a common pitfall, and it happens with um, uh, because you can't have infectious virus without the RNA, but you can have RNA without the infectious virus. So there, it is a trade-off, and these are very sensitive assays. You can detect really small quantities of um of these uh, viruses or the RNA that's left there. Um, yeah exactly it doesn't tell you anything about the infectious state so you have to interpret that's one thing I guess that's coming out of this is interpreting everything in context um, so you actually know um, what you're looking at
0: yeah and then I remember there was also an article saying and it's probably a similar thing about um how you know it can stay in the air for hours and stuff like that
1: right yeah Um, did you read that article as well yeah so that was um so basically, they used a specialized type of um, uh, apparatus in the lab that basically keeps the virus floating in the air. So they would, um, yeah. they, they would measure it in the air, but it's not like the virus would actually stay in there in a, in a normal environment. Normally, it would just fall out of the sky because they're large enough that they would just fall out of the air. But in this special apparatus, they're basically testing whether the air would inactivate it without it touching any of the surface. So it lasted three hours, I think, in the air like that. But that's—it doesn't mean that it will actually stay in the air. It's just yeah. if maybe I don't know, it was in a space station or something where. It <laughs> in the space station. Yeah. yeah. Might be. Let, a let's hope it doesn't get to
0: the space station. Yeah.
1: Exactly. The last.
0: <laughs> <day>. <laughs> That could be a problem. Yeah, cool. So, um, has there been any other interesting research maybe you've seen recently, or or that sort
1: of caught your eye where you went,
0: oh, that's that's interesting, or something that you thought was was quite interesting?
1: Yeah. So, I think um, some of the interesting stuff is the vaccines that are coming through. So, um, there has been a big push um, it, um, for uh, to find a vaccine. Basically, that's sort of one of the uh, only sort of. Uh, hopes, I guess, that we have apart from sort of uh, drugs for treatment of cases, but as a prophylactic, yeah, vaccine is probably the way to go. And I think currently there's over 100 vaccines that are in various stages of um, of uh, clinical development. Um, and then, yeah, five or six of those are actually uh, in phase one clinical trials. So they're actually putting them into people. And I think one of the interesting vaccines from that are these um, RNA vaccines. So basically, they are uh, vaccine that you can give someone and then the body will produce the vaccine so you don't have to um you don't have to grow a virus up in culture like the flu vaccine or something like that and give them a weakened form of the virus that will still replicate this is just the genetic material and they give that in a little uh lipid uh body and that cell will take that up and then make the protein inside the cell um so you sort of produce the vaccine yourself in your body and that's sort of the idea is that that'll um sort of provide better uh, cell-based immunity um, compared to some of these other just protein-based vaccines. And it's much easier to develop um, than these inactivated virus or attenuated virus vaccines. And it was really cool because they could take basically from when the virus was, the sequence was published in um, January, early in this year, they basically just downloaded that sequence from the internet and then put it into a machine that prints out the RNA, makes the sequence, and then that's the vaccine basically done. So they could just from one side of the world to the other, from China to I think these are an American company, the Moderna RNA. Um, they um, they developed this vaccine basically in two months or a month or something like that. They had a, a vaccine ready to go; and just printed it up. That's crazy. So they printed
0: they printed the RNA to make the vaccine, like
1: yeah. And so basically, because you can just uh, do it the same way you would make the PCR test, you can just produce some RNA that way. And um, then yeah, that one. If it's the right sequence, they can put it inside a, uh, a, a little bit of a, a lipid violator that the cell will take up and eat. And once it's inside the cell, um, the cell will make the vaccine basically itself. Yeah, That's so cool. <laughs> that, that's so awesome. I hadn't heard of that
0: yet. Um, how, how, so they've been working on that for a while, you said then? Like, yeah. That so
1: uh, initially, I think they started working on it as soon as the sequence was published, basically. So they have spent um, years setting up basically the uh, tooling, so the, the system to produce these vaccines. Um, But now that they have that in place, uh, when there is a new sort of disease outbreak or something like that, they can just get the sequence from the internet and then put it into their uh, pipelines and out comes a vaccine. Um, There's some sort of, um, they're not too sure how well it will scale up. So basically it's hard to produce uh, these at high volumes, Um, but some of these vaccines are actually able to, um, uh, they're like uh, self boosting. So when you give someone a little bit of it, each each little bit of RNA will produce multiple copies um, of the vaccine. So you only need to give, you know, people talking that grams would be enough to um, inoculate um, millions of people. So it's really sort of concentrated stuff, but um, whether or not that pans out, I guess we'll see.
0: Yeah. It's almost a race to see who gets there first, isn't it? Like you said, there's hundreds of ones.
1: Yeah. A lot of these big pharma companies are actually investing now into like, uh, like they're making the vaccine now. So they have these maybe not necessarily that RNA based vaccine, but some of these other protein vaccines or the more traditional vaccines. Um, they're already producing the vaccines before the trials have even gone through. So that if they do work out, they'll be ready to go straight away as like an investment. Yeah. That's
0: awesome. That's so good that um yeah, that there's so many different, you know, places or, or companies trying to like you know, once I suppose it's going to be a big profit thing for them as well because everyone's going to want to buy it if they're the first. So, yeah. um, but that's great to hear that you know there's so many people working on it and sort of planning ahead for like, hey, if this does work, we're going to be ready to roll it out. Mm-hmm. That's um, that's that's really promising. What 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 do you reckon for timeline still? Because I know you know we always talk about this, uh, and it's what what what's your thoughts? Obviously, mm-hmm. it's hard to tell, but um, best yeah, guess, would- what would you say?
1: I was looking. uh, I was watching a a lecture today from a um, a vaccinologist who um, was sort of looking at different vaccines, and they were saying that once they're in, once they have sort of phase good phase two data, so they've put it into people in like a healthy, select group of people, and they can say like, okay, this is a safe vaccine. No, this small group of people hasn't developed any sort of clinical signs from just the vaccine itself, and then they go to a targeted population that they think. Could be a chance of getting disease that bigger group of people that might be at risk of developing uh COVID-19 and so they give that to them and if they see good like efficacy of the vaccine that these people um don't develop the disease it then if they start ramping up from that point it's still 12 months away yeah so yeah so from that once they have this good then yeah this the green light is to go they're saying yeah still a year from that point so it might be that's for uh Enough vaccine for everyone. So, um, people like healthcare workers and stuff like that, they might actually be selectively chosen to go into these early trials, basically to say, like, okay, you are someone who's more at risk. And so, just through compassionate use, they'll say, okay, we're going to select you for one of these of early um, doses. Uh, so, that it might actually not take that long. It'll be for, I guess, for a regular Joe to get a vaccine, could still be a year. But for people who are on the front line, it, it could come a lot quicker, I guess.
0: Yeah. Cool. I suppose. Yeah. They would just select them for the trial um, for the research. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah cool. That's awesome. Um, so then like I've had a heap of questions from people and, you know, people talk about um, like temperature, for example. So I'm just wondering what temperature, like environmental temperature. Um, so, you know, obviously we're coming sort of into winter in Australia. Yeah. What's um, how will that affect the way this um, I suppose behaves, whether that's, how it transmits or how, it, how long it lasts in the environment? What, how does that affect things?
1: Yeah, I guess like um, the sort of the traditional um, seasonality with flu is uh, like there's different explanations for it, I guess. One of them is that during winter, um, people sort of are indoors, crowded together more and they're uh, more likely to transmit the virus. I guess it doesn't really make sense for us in the southern hemisphere who in winter, it's a nice time to go outdoors and sort of actually get, get out um, from the aircon. Uh, but yeah, another thing is definitely the effect of temperature on the viability of the virus. So, um, these viruses, their envelope, they're not as stable, they will break down over time in the environment and that temperature should change that. But, um, it might not like basically the temperature, um, that we're seeing because we have had these outbreaks during summer already, um, and through winter in the U S it sort of seems like that, uh, the, at least the effective temperature is not that much on the virus that maybe through uh like if in a social distancing situation where um where people aren't coming in contact with each other as much the virus might be able to stay a bit longer and be more likely to be picked up but in the sort of non-lockdown situation where everyone's sort of moving around the effective temperature isn't that much on it so you wouldn't really see that um that effective temperature on virus transmission so it's I think that the effective temperature is low enough that we're really not seeing um, that much of a difference from it. Um, so they
0: they last longer like so then what what kind of what's their ideal sort of temperature range that they like then for like is
1: there a, a range yeah, there I'm, there not, there for? I'm not entirely sure for coronaviruses, but it will depend on the virus. Um, there um, the, there's sort of two different s- states, I guess, for a virus. There's the infected cell and the virion or the virus particle. and so each uh, each sort of state, will have different characteristics. So once it's in the cell, it will have an optimal temperature for replication. And um, when it's outside the cell, it might have, like, when it's just a particle, then it might have some optimal temperature um, for transmission. So definitely, um, like, I work with a lot of ectothermic vertebrates, so cold-blooded animals. And these animals will have, their body temperature will change a lot. And so the optimal, they are able to sort of move around an environment to change um, where the uh, optimal temperature of the virus was would to replicate so we have like 37 degrees body temperature so a lot of our viruses are sort of adapted to that um replication temperature uh but outside the host you know like a high temperature can definitely inactivate these viruses um low temperatures are generally good at storing them like we keep virus in the fridge or freezer or something like that from the lab um to store yeah. them but yeah i'm not too sure how much they will actually have an impact on the sort of epidemiology and transmission of viruses.
0: So. yeah and I suppose, especially because, you, like you said, it's been in the the northern hemisphere already, where it's been in cold conditions. Um, and I suppose it's it's I don't know. Has there been much difference between it up there, like how it's transmitted up to the northern hemisphere compared to southern hemisphere? Have they looked into something like that?
1: I mean, there's basically. I guess there is the data there from like um, uh, these different countries, but it's also hard because a lot of them. Um, Ah, uh, basically, from what, from what I've seen, these sort of tropical countries like Vietnam and South Korea, and sort of places like this in China, they had extensive uh, tracing, testing, and lockdown, mask use, all these sort of other interventions that were used at the same time. It's very difficult to tease out whether that, like the climate or something, was um, causing this uh, sort of disease outbreak, uh, yeah. or it was these other sort of aspects um, that they were putting in place that sort of reduced it. So there has been, like, in some of these places, there have been less cases like in australia we've had less cases and it's probably be, it's been warmer than in other countries but um it's hard to say because we also locked down the borders we implemented this very strict sort of quarantine protocols um so yeah it's difficult to say the effect of temperature
0: yeah i suppose it's hard because every every country and everywhere is doing a different you know implementing different measures to try and yeah. sort of you know um stop the spread so it's hard to say well is it the measures that they're doing that's, that's stopping it? Or is it the, you know, the environment or is it the population density? Like there's all these factors that yeah. make it really difficult, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, there's a, it's thousands and thousands of fully designed experiments. So like <laughs> normally in, you would change one factor at a time, but this yes. is, yeah, lots of factors sort of changing. So it is, it is difficult. I, I'm sure it will be analyzed in great detail after this is done and people are trying at the moment, but uh, yeah, it's hard to work out what exactly is the cause. It's like you got to get all the
0: data, really. You know, we don't really have all the data yet, do we? So it's gotcha, difficult yeah. to, uh, to figure that out. So uh, like one question I've had from, from lots of people and some people, and I think it's important. So maybe just talk about what the difference is between like, say, this virus to the flu. Like what makes it different from the flu? And why do we have to sort of, um, you know, the measures that we put in place, why are they different to, you know, what we would do normally with the flu? Because you see
1: people say, oh, the flu kills so many people and right. stuff like that. But how is it different? Yeah. Okay. So, well, I guess the um, the healthcare system is set up to handle the flu basically because these are very predictable, I guess, outbreaks. We get a flu season and um, this sort of, we get this cyclic outbreak uh, every winter There there is an outbreak of influenza virus uh, in each hemisphere. And the, syst- the current system is set up for that. So we have, you know, um, basically, I guess the government doesn't really like to waste money. So they <laughs> will, Yeah, I guess they'll they'll have some sort of capacity for beds, and that capacity includes the seasonal variation in influenza. And so, if an outbreak like this happens, where we suddenly double our capacity, hospital requirements, the influenza isn't going anywhere. It's still there, and this is sort of an extra thing on top. I guess maybe if we swap them out, it might not be as bad. But that would be, I guess, if all other things were equal, um, and you could swap them out, then it wouldn't be bad. But it's it's because we have two things at the same time um i think it's also because we don't have a vaccine so we have a completely naive population so the virus is able to spread unchecked um and there is no sort of immunity at all within the um within the community whereas with influenza we have a good we have good flu system we um do a lot of surveillance we develop vaccines every year um to help mitigate the this disease um, I, from what I've seen, this uh, virus is actually more pathogenic than, uh, than influenza. So uh, for whatever reason, it's uh, the pathology that's caused by this virus is um, more severe than influenza virus. And so, uh, uh, yeah, I guess that is a, a thing to sort of point to when people say, okay, it's, it's just like influenza. And it's like, well, it's not like just like influenza. People are developing different types of pneumonia and there are all these sort of secondary complications like blood clots and kidney failure and heart disease. So um, it does seem more severe in terms of just the disease. Yeah.
0: yeah. So what what sort of causes those side effects then? Like when a virus like this enters the body and starts replicating and stuff like that, what actually causes these? Um, I suppose they're side effects, or we would call them symptoms. Um, yeah. But you know, really, I suppose they are side effects of the the virus replicating in the body. What what maybe causes that in 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 this you know virus? Is there? Do you know much about about that?
1: Yeah. So. Um, uh, there is some initial, uh, disease that is sort of from the, uh, the replication of the virus itself, but they think that the majority of disease in this virus is immunopathology. So it's induced from the post immune response. So as we try and fight this virus, we, uh, sort of develop an overactive immune response and that has, that leads to, um, some damage to tissues as the immune system sort of goes a bit out of control. And so a lot of the treatments are actually immune suppressants um, that they're using for, to treat this virus, um, things that are sort of blocking cytokines and, um, uh, uh, yeah, sort of reducing inflammation, uh, with, through this disease, um, uh, uh, blood clots are another sort of problem that people have, that have they've seen come up, um, as well as heart disease. So the, the, the receptors that the virus binds to are also found in cardiac tissue in the, in the heart, as well as in the lung. So this sort of, um, it's it's has the ability to go widespread, I guess, within the body. And, and after the, after the initial replication, um, people are then seeing, uh, this immune response, uh, cytokine storm and, um, a really strong response to this virus from our immune system, which is then leading to a lot of damage to tissues. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So then, um, this might be a silly question, but does that mean it's good to have not a
1: very good immune system for this? Well, so it's sort of interesting. So I think that it's it's good to have not a good immune system at the right time. So the immune system is still very important. And they sort of found this with their initial use of uh, steroids for the treatment of this disease. So uh, originally, they were giving people um, steroids uh, when they came in with this disease to sort of tamp down this immune response. But it, it seems that the initial immune response is actually important in sort of controlling the virus but it's when that immune response gets out of control that you need to bring it down again. so it is it's the immune response is still it evolved for a reason it's still very important uh, in controlling disease but yeah it can still get a little bit out of control yeah
0: yeah so it's just about about having it at the right time that was just yeah, a bit of a, a silly on. question really <laughs> um so then like also like with pre-existing conditions so is it you know, we talk about pre-existing illness. Is it really any illness or is it stuff that's to do with where we see damage from it? Like, is it more if you've got things with, so like you're talking about the heart, kidneys, lungs, things to do with that, or is it, you know, is it widespread can be like anything like, you know, how does that affect things?
1: Um, So I think definitely uh, things that might limit your oxygen consumption. So exacerbate this sort of problem. So uh, sort of chronic pulmonary diseases and, um, and heart conditions are a majorly uh, associated by a comorbidity associated with like COVID-19. Um, so I think, yeah, definitely the, there are specific diseases. So um, during the pathology, um, having one of these sort of organs already compromised is going to just lead to worse outcomes. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen too much, I guess like immunocompromised people are, are not a susceptible group just because they're more likely to get this virus at the start. And if it is able to replicate unchecked that's a bad sort of thing like you will need the immune system to bring it back down and like initially um so it might be good to not have a big immune response later on but definitely at the start it's an important part of fighting off virus viruses to um stop it developing so immunocompromised people for sure um and basically like um humans exist in a state of homeostasis like all our sort of systems and organs they're not really um uh, i mean there is redundancy within our body but they all play a role. So if you are compromised in some way, it's definitely going to affect your outcome but uh, just because it's part of this larger system. Yeah, Your yeah. body is investing into some other healing process, then it might not be as effective in fighting the virus.
0: Yeah. Cool. Um, so what about like reinfection? You know, is, is that possible? Um, is there much evidence or, or has there been much research on that? Because, um, you know, I, you, I've seen things where they say, Yes, it is possible. People don't have the antibodies or there's mutations or things. So what have you seen in terms of um, like reinfection?
1: Yeah, so I think reinfection is definitely possible. In China, they've seen a bunch of people become reinfected. But I th- and I think that would sort of be expected, that um, people who uh, have SARS or the other coronaviruses or the common cold sort of coronaviruses, they still get reinfected every year but they just develop milder symptoms. So basically, I think the immune response in this case is not a a neutralizing response. So it doesn't completely stop any sort of infection, but it will basically, it helps the initial immune response stop that infection from developing into something severe. So um, definitely reinfection is possible, but it basically won't result in this sort of um, uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome that you see developing um, in people who are infected for the first time.
0: Um, yeah but you could then be a carrier who who maybe spreads it right
1: yeah well i guess that i'm not too sure how if they've looked at um spreading from the secondary infection but generally the uh incubation time at least is shorter so uh i, I heard some people sort of say that these common cold coronaviruses that we have circulated at the moment everyone sort of gets infected with those they develop a cold um and they move on with their life that's not a really big problem uh the i guess When those viruses sort of initially moved into the human population from animals, these were also animal viruses that moved in at some point, um, these probably spread around and caused a lot of disease within the human population. But once everyone was infected, at least once, it's then only new children who are exposed to that virus. And from what we've seen with children, children don't really develop a severe disease from this. So we can sort of get into a situation that once it's spread through the adult population, the only new susceptible people will be new children. And they don't develop severe disease. And then once they've had it once, they will be—they'll have this immunity, and they can get exposed and continue to develop a less severe disease. Um, so it might just eventually reach this point where it um, finds a sort of niche within our population and it continues to circulate, but causes uh, doesn't cause as many deaths, or if any, maybe
0: kind of like chickenpox. Like you know that—that's something that you know you get in the young populations. Um, yeah, that's you know maybe a good analogy there.
1: Yeah, uh, it probably. Uh, puts, pox has like a, a more of a lifelong immunity, I guess. So you can develop a long-term immunity to this, uh, to okay, this yep. infection. But um, like I would, you'd still sort of expect people to get develop some sort of symptoms with this one. Um, um, they may be infectious for a short period, but yeah, as much as a, just a cold or something. Like yeah. That. And so would,
0: is this something that could take on potentially like a seasonal effect, something where, you know, we have seasonal, seasonal coronavirus every year.
1: Yeah, yeah. In the same way that the common cold coronavirus is, it's like cold season. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Cool.
0: So, you know, what what's if we're if we're looking at say a year at the earliest for a vaccine, uh, what what do you think the next maybe year or two years looks like? Just in your opinion, obviously this is we're speculating here. <laughs> yeah. um, what, what do you think is going to happen in this next year or two uh, while we sort of develop this vaccine before it rolls out?
1: Yeah, I have um, I saw someone on Twitter posting that this is the part of the movie that would be a montage, so that <laughs> where everyone, I guess there would be a cut scene with Rocky or something, or I have the tiger playing in the background and some scientists looking in test tubes and down a microscope. And then a year later, cut to the vaccine and everyone's safe. But I guess, yeah, what do we do? What does everyone else do during that time? Yeah. Um, there's been talk of, I guess, so there are still exit strategies that people are talking about. Um, for this disease. Uh, so basically, we can continue this lockdown, I guess. So we stay inside, um, which is not too fun. It's not good for the economy, I guess, uh, but it stops people getting disease. We've been very s- successful in Australia um, in keeping this virus sort of uh, from spreading. Uh, we can try su- su- suppression. So that would be like um, allowing specific age groups or non risk um, groups or essential workers to sort of come back and um, start uh, releasing sort of small communities or populations within the community to go out and do these things to sort of help stuff move along. Um, And then people, I guess, like these are sort of strategies um, that you basically to to try and keep things as much as normal until the vaccine um, comes comes around. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, basically, I think the government... So the government's initial plans with these lockdowns were based on modelling from uh, University of Sydney in New South Wales. And so they had said that it would take 90 days or so for this lockdown to completely remove the virus. But once the um, lockdowns were re- removed, it would basically come back. Yep. So I think um, we might see uh, a sort of network develop between countries that are also um, removing the virus. I've heard talk that New Zealand has offered to... Um, recommence travel between New Zealand and Australia okay we might start to build this sort of network of safe countries that it's okay to sort of travel to so that was sort of the main case I guess in Australia with this problem of in- imported cases was sort of the main problem yeah um, and so if we can identify these countries that are virus free we can slowly start to reincorporate them um and basically it would just be until we get a vaccine so um there's the chance of herd immunity is not good. Um, yeah and uh basically we'd need too many people to be infected and with the current uh infection fatality rates it's just not worth it but, um yeah a lot of people
0: would die because i you know i've seen the the research articles or, or the news articles i guess that say 60 percent of people would need to get it and then when yeah. you look at the mortality rate like that's that's a huge
1: number of people isn't it yeah yeah exactly yeah um millions of people dying so it's just not practical in any way and they can so the, the original ideas were, like, if we can keep the replication rate or the reproduction rate of this virus down to, uh, like, 1.2 so that every person infects 1.2 other people. So it's not barely uh, transmitted to two people um, yeah. each time, each person. Um, and so uh, if they were able to do that and keep it at 1.2, the peak would still be in um, 2021, mid-2021, and the... And the um, the infection would still be going on by 2022. And that's about when we would reach herd immunity. And so it would be the sort of drawn out process to keep people out of hospital so we don't overwhelm the hospital system. But it would definitely, it would flatten this curve and um, take it out uh, much longer. Um, At the moment, they're estimating that the reproductive rate is around 0.8, which is why the curve has sort of dropped down. But that's because of these strict measures that they've put in place. And obviously they're not sustainable. So it's going to take... Yeah, sort of people releasing at these slow times. One thing um, that might be uh, sort of interesting is this app that the government is releasing. So they have this um, app that apparently, I don't know, 2 million people so have downloaded already, which basically tells um, them uh, who is in close contact to each other. So if you're within 1.5 meters of someone for 15 minutes, it's sort of recorded. And then if there's an outbreak, they will be able to track that down. Uh, So they do the contract tracing in like very, In a very good detail, which is something that China is also doing. Um, They have sort of uh, they have a system for telling people where they can go, um, when they can go there, and um, and keeping track of each of the citizens. And I think that is probably the easiest way in this sort of um, suppression um, uh, model to say, okay, we can let these people go, but if there is an outbreak and local transmission, we jump on it very quickly using this sort of technology to track down all the contacts. and have uh, extensive testing around that person, lock down an area and sort of do it as this reactive process um, as opposed to sort of letting it all go or keeping it all shut down. Anything is getting everyone to sign up, mate. Yeah, exactly. People people
0: don't want to be tracked. And even though they've got all these assurances that it's on the app, you know. Yeah, but um, everyone would
1: be on Facebook, I guess, who's probably doing the same thing anyway. Exactly. They probably can track you, but (laughs) yeah.
0: yeah. Um, So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that then. Because yeah, I mean, it could you know that that does sound pretty promising and i think they've there's been a number of countries that have, have started doing that hasn't there already yeah
1: yeah i saw a, um at the very beginning of the outbreak um mit released an app in the u.s that was doing the exact sort of thing um same thing for contact contract tracing yeah
0: yeah so what about um like places that have done early lockdowns like i know i suppose in terms would you say that we did go into an early lockdown because it really depends on when the virus gets here and how quick it's spreading, isn't it? Would you say that we went into lockdown early in terms of how far the virus had spread?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, in terms of like compared to some of these other places that got out of control, definitely. And we, we've, uh, we matched South Korea very closely with our sort of curves as to when we went into, um, out, um, when we went into lockdown. And I think because they were ahead of us, we could use them as a bit of a model to yep. sort of say, okay, when are the right times to go into a full lockdown and, Um, how much testing is required. Um, And I think uh, we were sort of lucky in that we are an island nation and that all our sort of cases were imported through basically air travel, I guess through some of these cruise trips as well. But um, it was majority of these imported cases. And so closing um, down uh, travel was a very effective method. at sort of stopping this. So it's actually sort of unclear as to how uh, local lockdown has stopped any sort of the outbreak, like basically this initial uh, curve that we saw coming out was all all from imported cases. Um, And so stopping large gatherings and closing schools and things like that, it's unclear as to if they actually had an effect um, on this outbreak. And schools are probably one of the things that will they'll open back up first um, from some recent modeling showing that uh, uh, kids aren't having that big of an effect on the spread of the virus. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So
0: has there, like I suppose in other countries, is is there a bit of a correlation maybe between like um, when they go into lockdown and sort of the mortality? Are we seeing people who don't go into lockdown, whatever you would call early, um, mm. having higher mortality rates? Is that something that, that they've found in the data?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think that is from overwhelming hospitals, basically. So there are uh, it's not a death sentence. People can be treated for this virus, but you need to be able to treat them. And so if there are too many people to treat, there are just going to be more deaths. So um, if the number of infections overwhelms overwhelms a healthcare system, then yeah, it's going to really start to increase the number of deaths, yeah. Yeah. Um, What about like
0: antivirals and stuff? And and so treatments for it, rather than than actual, um, you know, the vaccine itself. How's that looking? Is there, is there stuff that's promising? Anything you've seen or that's piqued your interest at all?
1: Yeah. So the chloroquine uh, stuff, the um, malaria drug. So it's a uh, malaria drug that malaria developed um, resistance to pretty early on, I guess, but um, is still used in the treatment of other sort of um, parasite infections and things like that. Um, it doesn't look like it's going to work. So they've uh, done a, bunch of larger trials now and it doesn't look like this drug is actually having a reasonable effect on the outcome of patients mm-hmm. so there was some initial talk, talk and trump jumped on to it very early on and said like this is this miracle drug and you know a couple of people died because they started taking it um or what they thought was it um and uh so that doesn't look as promising as was but there is some other uh drugs like uh i think it's called um remdesivir which is a um, basically, it's it's a nucleoside analog. So part of the um, the coronavirus's RNA are these little A's T's uh, or A's U's G's and C's. And this one is a um, it's like the A, but it sort of prevents um, the viral chain from being built out, the RNA from being built out. So it blocks the replication by um, interfering with the repli- um, as as a place of an A. So it, um, uh, comes in sort of blocks it, and that is looking promising. So there have been some results saying that this could work, but I think a lot of these drugs are sort of uh, last case severe treatment things. I guess the, it's it's not like it like we have good drugs for the flu. People still die of the flu and things like that. I guess like Tamiflu is like a reasonable drug, um, but yeah, it's it's not like it's going to be some sort of widespread. We're going to find this miracle penicillin or something like that that's going to suddenly stop all cases. Um, I think more likely it's just going to be something that improves outcomes uh, as opposed to like a silver bullet. Other things like um, just sort of basic uh, hospital treatment, people found that keeping people off um, respirators uh, and not uh, intubating them as long as they can, uh, laying people in a prone position to give them uh, more uh, lung capacity has actually been really effective in, um, in uh, improving outcomes. So there's like sort of little things like that that people are, um, learning and then along with the um, sort of immune medication, dampening that sort of immune response at the right time and um, yeah and um, and this uh, this clotting sort of problem. So getting people onto it's it's sort of in rare cases, but giving people um, the right blood thinners as well um, to prevent clotting in this disease. Yeah,
0: yeah. I saw something recently um, about that with the clotting and it's like some diseases do the opposite. Um, give the opposite effect um you know viruses and stuff where it's it thins the blood um yeah. but this one seems to be doing some like clotting and stuff Let's, uh, yeah
1: yeah so it's sort of uh i guess it's basically it's an immune mediated response so it's from the immune system and the the body has in you know, a balance both clotting and um by anti-clotting agents and it sort of depends which one the immune system attacks so if it attacks the clotting agent or a factor that regulates the clotting agent, you know, can, can end up causing blood thinning, or it could end up causing more clotting based on which component of that sort of clotting cascade that it affects. Yeah. yeah.
0: So if we, what about like, a, a, have we seen much sort of mutation with this virus? Has it changed um, in humans? Has there been been much research out there? I, I did see someone send me an article um, about um, some, an article that came out last week saying that they found six, Sort of mutations or slight variations in it um and and they were sort of interested to see well is that going to affect um sort of how effective the um the um, oh, the, um oh, i've forgotten the word now <laughs> um, like not the
1: treatments the um oh what's the word like the infection rate or like the transmissibility of the virus or
0: um yeah like what Let's just see what you've got on it. What knowledge do you have on any of these first? I'll think of the word.
1: Yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, this, we're in the middle of a pandemic. These viruses are definitely going to mutate. Um, that's just sort of how they work. Um, uh, the, this type of virus is actually sort of um, not very error prone. They have an error correcting system, which is unusual for an RNA virus. Generally, RNA viruses mutate much more rapidly. But um, as far as we can tell, there has been no sort of Phenotypic so uh, effect of these mutations. These viruses aren't actually causing cha- changes in the um, in the characteristics of the virus. These um, mutations aren't co- t- causing changes in the characteristics of the virus. So although we are seeing um, changes in the virus, and you can use that to track them, um, they they're not necessarily increasing disease um, or transmissibility. Um, although there has been a case uh, similar to what happened in SARS virus, where one of the um, open reading frame, so like a gene within the virus has had a major deletion in it. I think this happened in Singapore where they found this virus has been circulating circulating for several weeks or a month or so, um, and that they from studies in SARS, which also had a deletion in that same gene, um, that variant is probably a sort of weakened variant, so it's more host adapted so as as these viruses move from one host to another, there's no point in them killing all the things they infect because they will just die out. They need a host. So generally viruses will adapt to the host that they infect and they'll reach some sort of um equilibrium where they can both sort of survive um at at some reasonable level. And so if this virus is able to outcompete the other globally circulating strain, we may end up with this sort of um uh yeah less virulent uh strain of the virus circulating. So there has been some changes within it, but Nothing as obvious. I remember this initial sort of S and L type strain um, difference, but that was really from one paper where they were just sort of single nucleotide changes or single amino acid changes, which really um, didn't have any effect on the, on the phenotype. I've got the word. Does it? Does it, how does that affect the vaccine?
0: I can't believe I oh, forgot vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> so does that change anything the way the vaccine would work, or because yeah, it's got it's- that
1: same? The majority of these vaccines are targeting the S protein, which is the spike protein, so the surface protein of um, the coronavirus. And um, if the change was in that and it was significant enough, then, yeah, it could, um, it could definitely result in a reduced uh, efficacy of the um, vaccine. But uh, there are other coronavirus vaccines for um, like pigs um, and other animals. And maybe there's a cow one, I think. Um, but they, they work. So uh, there's no reason to expect that um, these would change that rapidly. So the problem with flu viruses is that they can go under this process where um, they have rapid evolution. They change much faster than these. And they can also shift. So they can swap large segments uh, much more easily than these coronaviruses can. So you can get a lot of sort of mixing of these viruses. and makes it much harder to develop a uh, a sort of vaccine that will work um, across all the strains, whereas this one seems fairly stable, at least from what we're seeing from the genetics data. One um, cool website you can go to is called nextstrain.org, which is where they do this um, phylodynamics analysis. So they have, as all the sequences are published for these um, new viruses, they um, they will incorporate them into a phylogenetic tree and you can sort of trace them in real time as these uh, the evolution of these viruses in real time, which which was sort of the founder strains and where they come from. And you can kind of put them all over the globe and they can sort of use the genetics to track back the origin. Um, But yeah, none of that has really seemed to have an effect on the um, phenotype of the virus.
0: Yeah. So then let's go to the, uh, the slight conspiracy theory. Then if we can track it back, um, is this something, do we know definitely it's not from a lab or like, how can we, have we found that link in there that's linking it to, um, you know, an animal or anything specific like that?
1: Yeah, so um, the closest related virus, I think it's 96% or 92% or something like that, is a bat virus. So very closely related to a bat virus. Um, So it's not that much of a leap to say, okay, yeah, this is a spillover from that bat virus. The same way we've seen other uh, coronaviruses spillover from bats before, they're closely related to circulating viruses, and they moved over. In the case of like SARS-1, we we've moved from bats into uh, civets maybe something else and then into humans and you can sort of track that um that transmission period at the moment we don't know what that if there was another intermediate host um but um yeah basically i don't think there'd be any reason to go out of your way to think that it was released on purpose something yeah. like that right like there's no There's no good evidence to say that. And in fact, it's much easier if you use like Occam's razor or something like that. The more simple solution is that, yes, it behaved exactly as it's behaved 100 times before and just spilled over by animals. I mean, if you go to one of these pandemic prediction websites from five years ago, 10 years ago, they will all list SARS and MERS or coronaviruses as as potential pandemic pathogens. So we've known that these pathogens are on the edge of some sort of pandemic. And I guess it doesn't also make sense to release a virus that is going to go and like everyone's being infected. I mean, unless yeah. it is the people in the uh, space station that are doing it, <laughs> like uh, <laughs> odd sort of process to go through.
0: Yeah. But uh, so is there any way that we can or we will be able to sort of definitively prove that? it wasn't from a lab? Will we be able to find those? Um, like if, you know, like if there are other animals somewhere where it's, it's gone from bats to those animals or there's something in between, will we, can we find that?
1: Yeah. I mean, if it is still circulating in those animals and you can sort of say like, I mean, you could always make this argument that, oh yeah, someone took it from whatever animal is really closely related to. And then they went out and released it everywhere. Like, I mean, it depends on your definition of like made in a lab. Like if, it's just been accidentally released from a lab and sort of someone took it from a lab and they infected themselves and went for a walk in the, um, market somewhere. I mean, I don't think we will really be able to tell that it's the same sort of way as if it just had spilled over from someone handling wildlife or something like that, I guess. Yeah. Um, but in terms of like someone genetically engineering this virus, uh, there's no sort of signatures within the virus saying that it was touched by humans. And, um, in fact, I've seen some stuff going around saying that the the opposite is true, that there are some sort of there are some sequences um uh within the virus that are sort of unknown to people. And so it would be very unusual for people to be able to know what those sequences were and then put them uh into the virus. Yeah, cool. There we go. No conspiracy. I'll
0: believe you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um so um I'm gonna ask some some fun questions. We do this at the end all the time. Um, and if, if, we, if we think of anything else while we're there, maybe if there's anything you want to maybe talk about or, or let people know, we can do that at the very end. Um, so first question I give everyone. Um, I'm a single man at the moment in this pandemic. Yeah. First date ideas, mate. Um, social distancing, first date ideas. Have you got anything for us? Currently? Yeah. Any, any ideas?
1: Oh, geez, man.
0: It's put sort on of the spot. Like the Zoom
1: date. Oh, one of my mates went and um, uh, met up with someone on the Strand but had the uh it's sort of the walking at a distance situations probably not much better than uh than a zoom date but yeah, yeah it's definitely it's hard to do at the moment um totally so general all these sort of local spots of bars and cafes are not there yeah. yeah
0: yeah you can't really do anything social so it's like yeah like you said yeah. zoom or go for a walk yeah exactly Gotta get, get creative. Um, so next question, because um, we've uh, obviously had some toilet paper issues around um, the country and stuff. Not really anymore, I don't think. But um, are you a scruncher or a folder?
1: I am a folder. yeah. Folder, folder yeah. for life. Yeah, I was very lucky in that my mom sent me a box of toilet paper right in the middle of the <laughs> of the outbreak. She uh, yeah. she got the who gives a crap um, subscription. So. Uh, yeah individually wrapped rolls turn up just when I was like one roll away from being in trouble. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Boulder. That's good.
0: So uh, I suppose that leads on to the next question is like, what do you have lots of in supply? Whether it's something you went and panic bought on purpose or, or you just happened to, to get it cause there was nothing left at the shops. Is there anything you have in large supply at your place? Oh
1: yeah. Uh, I got a bunch of Easter eggs, I guess. <laughs> <Which I'm like> <laughs> <that>. <laughs> and Rapidly bought the day before Easter. Um, what else do I have? I didn't try. I was trying to like very early on. I was like, oh, don't panic buy anything. I went and yeah. bought a couple of extra beans and things. I get um, the uh, dinnerly delivery dinner box thing. Sent. Yeah. So I have, that's a good way to sort of avoid the shocks. And it's, it hasn't had any sort of um, supply chain issues. Yeah. Um, I went and bought a bunch of uh, um, filament for my 3D printer. So I've been sitting at home 3D printing stuff. Which 3D is printing? Still- uh, I've been making uh, little figurines, and uh, I made a, a cast to make uh, pot plants. So you like cool. basically print out a cast, in like it's like a little shape of a house. You can fill that with some like plaster of Paris or concrete or something like that, and uh, yeah. produce like uh, little pots and things out of it. Just sort of boring things that you do <laughs> in isolation. Yeah. No, that's
0: cool man that sounds fun um and then so what have you got that you don't have much of in supply that you're like oh i'm gonna run out of that or i don't have much of that at, at the house
1: oh coffee, coffee. i just it to <laughs> yeah i've
0: got about one scoop left yeah. oh that's rough yeah. especially if you got to get that thesis done mate yeah exactly yeah, yeah. smashing the coffee um and so after this is all over what's the first thing you want to do when when we're you know when we're allowed
1: out to play oh it's, I feel like it's going to be a really slow release and I'm yeah. like yeah like if it was all done tomorrow I guess maybe I'd go to some mosh pit somewhere or something like that but yeah. <laughs> yeah I feel like it's going to be a very slow sort of I'll creep out to a bar one day and be like is this okay um, but yeah maybe hopefully I'll just wake up or realize one day that I'm sitting in a bar and not worried about the person who's coughing near me, or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: and so, another like last sort of fun question, I suppose. It's um, you know, um, a lot of people out there, not much to do. Um, any recommendations of a good book, good game, movie, or TV series that you enjoy? Uh, something that people can maybe do to pass the time and sort of, you know. Oh
1: yeah. Um. So I've been reading the Hundred Year Old Man, which is a good book. Um. Yeah. I got a. Uh, a super nintendo emulator for my computer so i've been playing pokemon fire red and, and um uh, some donkey kong which is good yes, yes and um yeah i think uh uh i've been watching kidding on stan which is like the new uh jim carrey series It's kind uh, of like dark
0: that. but
1: yep. yeah, it's, it's good in a way i don't mean you don't want to watch too many episodes in a row i guess but yeah that's yeah, good yeah cool Um,
0: and so I suppose that's all the fun questions we've got there. Um, but I just want to know, is there anything you've seen that you've loved, um, that's innovative or, or really interesting that you've found, and this can be, doesn't have to be in the, um, you know, academic world, although it could be, I suppose we sort of talked about that with the being able to print, um, you know, the, um, the, the vaccine, um, is there anything you've seen that you're like, Oh, that's awesome. That's really, really clever or anything around.
1: Yeah, like, um, I liked all the sort of, uh, if you go on to like Thingiverse, so I do a lot of 3D printing and stuff. And so if you go on there, there is just a bunch of people uploading designs for different medical equipment, making their own masks, developing, there was a big story about people developing components for um, for respirators, um, or and then printing them out and giving them on. So yeah, there's sort of a lot of this sort of maker community is sort of giving back a lot and sort of saying, like, we have this production uh within our households and they're producing like a lot of material that can be used by um people who need it yeah pretty cool yeah
0: yeah i've got a mate who's actually um he's doing he's making the like the the band part that goes on the visors yeah. um for the face shields. so yeah he's um i think he's like oh i can only print like 10 a day but that's 10 more than they had so yeah,
1: exactly no it's yeah. great and then you think there's another 100 of him doing it like it's a yeah. whole world yeah, that's awesome.
0: Um, and I've seen other places like tooling up for different things, um, you know, um, companies who have big vats and stuff to make hand sanitizer and stuff like that. Like, that's been really interesting to see. Yeah, it?
1: I saw um, just in the news today that uh, Stephen Hawking's family donated his respirator to the NHS. It's just like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's random. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool.
0: Well, um, is there anything else you can think of that's uh interesting or to do, you know, with the virus? I'm sure I'll I'll get off this call and and instantly think yeah. of like ten things I want to know, and I'll, I'll I'll message you. But um, is there anything else that you think it's important for maybe people to know, or or, or that you want um, to tell people about this virus? Uh,
1: yeah, I guess like the I guess I mean this has kind of come out a little bit now, but that um, there's no predictive power in trend lines. So initially everyone was plotting these exponential curves with a trend line in it saying, you know, in a two months, there's going to be 100 million people dead or something like that, and sort of just plotted um, that out. And I think that's an in, in sort of important part of like epidemiology and modeling that um, you can't actually, the date doesn't predict number of cases. So people sort of make these, um, these sort of trend line analysis and it created a lot of fear. And I think that actually drove part of this panic buying scenario that we saw. whereas like using actual epidemiology, epidemiological models um gives you a much better idea of um, how the disease outbreak is going so i think um yeah trust trust experts and uh yeah stay inside don't panic
0: yeah yeah cool awesome man well thanks for the chat um it was really good to get your your take on some of that and some of the info um just before we go what's your uh what's your thesis on give us the specifics
1: Oh yeah. So my thesis is on um, the pathology and epidemiology of ranavirus infection in Australian freshwater turtles. So basically we um, went around uh, conducting a survey of this viral disease in uh, turtles um, throughout Northern Queensland, and then sort of developed an understanding of the pathogenesis of this disease. So different factors that influence how the disease develops in a way of sort of, um, so our turtles are very different to other turtles in the world. And so they're not, we're we're not sure if they are actually dying from the disease because people aren't looking and whether or, not are, um, uh, whether or not they produce the same sort of uh, pathology or that we don't really have the test to do it. So it's sort of this broad broad topic on pathology and epidemiology. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah cool. I'm going to quickly just go to uh, just to Facebook and see if we've got any questions on there. I haven't done this before um, going for, with the live, but um, let's see what we got. Let's see if we got anyone in there. Almost need an assistant to, uh, yeah. to be here and, and do it for me. I need a young Jamie. Um, that would be great. Here we go grow a mo. Everyone's everyone's just bagging me about my mo. <laughs> Got nothing on yours, mate. All right. Well, we might we might leave it there. Um, thanks, thanks, man, for coming on. Um, really great chat, and thanks for um, you know all the the help with with fact checking all the articles that I've yeah, been no sending. Worries,
1: you. I'm um, glad we could finally, finally figure it out. Yeah.
0: Too. yeah that's awesome um so yeah thanks man and um who knows we might we might get back on again one time and have another chat down the track once we know a little bit more and um you know you can yeah. maybe give us some more info then
1: definitely hopefully looking back um from uh,
0: a bar somewhere <laughs> when we're all yeah quick. we'll do it out somewhere at a bar that sounds yeah. good we'll have a few beers or something that's yeah, good hopefully. awesome all right, all right yeah. mate um have a good one thanks for uh coming on the show and i'll uh, talk to you soon Cheers. there we go guys Great episode. Thanks to Wyatt for coming on the show. Um, we've talked about afterwards. Um, I got to go up to Townsville and have a beer with him. So uh, we're going to make sure when this when this thing's all over, I'm definitely going to head up there and have a beer with him. Um, so like we said as well, we might um, we might sit down and have another chat at some stage, uh, get him back on the show. Maybe when there's some more research, or or maybe when the uh, you know when the vaccine is is closer to being sort of you know being used, uh, we can talk to him about how that's uh, how that's going. So thanks to him for. Coming coming on the show make sure you guys like and subscribe share this episode around um you know subscribe so you can stay up to date with all the episodes as they're released um hopefully have another beer with episode as well coming soon um so stay tuned for that one as well Make sure you're following me on all platforms at Boykin Koi. You can go to the website, abeerwith.com. There's links to everything there. Come join us for Friday knockoffs, 6 o'clock Friday. Uh, That's Australian time uh, where we just basically get together on a web chat, have some drinks, and uh, kick back and relax. So um, I'll see you guys there maybe on Friday. All right, guys. That's it for this episode. I hope you're having a great day or night wherever you are, and I'll see you guys soon for the next episode.